to thank you again for all the encouragement you gave me to do this book. Uh, it's one of the most meaningful things I've done in my career. So, and it was amazing. I uh, all all six hundred and what eighty four pages. <laughs> There was so much. I thought I knew a lot about Jim Thorpe, but your book was so enlightening. Well, thank you. Well, it seems that, um, you know, almost every uh, Native American I've interviewed has some connection to the Carlisle Indian School, which was so integral to this story and to Jim Thorpe's life. Can you tell us about your family's connections to that school? I had great uncles and aunts who went to Carlisle. And, you know, those stories didn't really come down to me directly because um, my grandfather and my great-grandfather did not go there. They went to boarding schools in Wisconsin. Uh-huh. But Carlisle was the, uh, that, was, that was the school upon which all the other boarding schools in America were patterned after, you know. Um, so... I got a sense of Carlisle through the stories that my grandfather told of Toma because Toma was patterned after Carlisle. And probably even worse in some ways. Toma. Yeah, you know, um, it was it was interesting. People forget about the industrial part of the uh-huh. uh, American Indian Industrial Boarding School. Yes. Um, children worked. I mean, they were they went to school half days. Um, and the other half of half of their day was spent working far, you know, as farmhands or scrubbing floors, washing dishes, tatting lace, depending on their gender, of course. Um, so it was um, it, it it was a life that was intended to create a, a generation of second class citizens, because mm. these children were going to be taught just enough. For them to be suitable, you know, blue collar servants or farmhands. You know, yesterday I talked to, to uh, Suzanne uh, Sean Harjo, and she said that they were trained to be good prisoners or soldiers. Oh, exactly. Well, that's the other thing. You know, if you look at World War One, um, the number of Native American boys who enlisted in the in the military. And became part of the you know American Expeditionary Forces. It was a seamless transition from the boarding schools to the training camps to the front lines, yes. because they were marching to dormitories, they were marching to their classrooms, they were, you know, marching to their their jobs after school, and um, every aspect of their life was regimented. That's one of the many many uh, paradoxes of that situation that. They were trained to be like the, uh, the U.S. Cavalry that had killed their grandparents, basically. You know, and what I really appreciated in your book was, um, you know, the, the fact that you, you nuanced what it meant for those American Indian boys to be playing the sons and grandsons of Army generals who had, you know, terrorized their communities and now, you know, and that, that's the amazing thing about sports, which I think you did a really good job in, in, in explaining, is that that was really the only place where these boys had any kind of freedom. Mm-hmm. And here they were being allowed to compete and, and you know, sometimes 
thrash pretty pretty brilliantly the you know the sons of the generals that had you know in some cases annihilated their people yeah now I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it and correct me if I'm wrong but going back to your family in Carlisle wasn't there a woman Denomi mm -hmm. who was a relative of yours who also had a connection to the nursing school there um, when Thorpe was there yeah, I didn't know much about her. It, it's uh, interesting. The, the urban denomies pronounce it that way. The reservation okay. denomies okay. Uh, yes. above Highway 8, north of Highway 8 in Wisconsin is kind of <laughs> the dividing uh -huh. line. Um, denomy or, or denomi. Um, and um, are you talking about Alice or, yes. or Josephine? I don't know which one. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, she wound up in an administrative position um, at Carlisle, and uh, I had I had other relatives who wound up going to boarding schools and then joining the Indian Service, which was the the organization that um, that that really shaped Indian lives on on reservations through boarding schools across the country. And I should have pointed out. Uh, earlier that that you come from the Bad River part of the Ojibwe Nation. Can you tell me about that sort of culture and his heritage? Yeah, I'm. I was hoping that you would um, give the old college try to pronouncing the actual name, the name oh. that we have, which is Meshkazibi. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then I was going to have a good chuckle because nobody gets that right. Meshkazibi. Meshkazibi, which translates to Medicine River. Okay. And that's what we call our community because the Bad River, which is a name uh -huh. French, gave this beautiful medicine oh. river, uh, which provided so much of our food and medicines, um, and still does, actually. It's a really abundant wild rice-producing area. Um, so we are located on the south shore of Lake Superior, and our lives traditionally revolved around fishing um, gathering wild rice, monomen, as we call it, um, planting corn, gathering berries, and, um, and taking deer. Those are our five traditional foods. Um, our, our seasonal cycle was pretty much organized around food. In the winter, you speared fish through the ice. Um, in the spring, you, um, you speared fish <laughs> when the ice had cleared. Um, in the summer, you gathered plants and tended a garden. In the fall, you gathered wild rice. And uh, in the winter, you trapped. So um, we were never adversaries of the federal government, um, but there was an effort to remove us. Zachary Taylor wanted to relocate us, much the way the Sock and Fox were removed uh -huh. um, during Black Hawk's era. And by the way, I have to tell you, I absolutely love the connection that you made between Black Hawk and Jim Thorpe, oh, especially you. as it related to the parades. You know, Black Hawk oh. was paraded through East Coast cities as this prisoner of war and this uh, symbol of the vanquished Indian. Yes. And then, you know, generations later, there's his his descendant, Jim Thorpe, being paraded and celebrated through those same cities. I thought that was brilliant. Mm -hmm. Really thought that was brilliant, David. Um, 
So back to uh, back to bed. So Rivers. Zachary Taylor tried to move you across the Mississippi. Right. He wanted to put us um, right in the heart of Sioux country. And the Ojibwe oh. and the Sioux were, you know, yes. you know traditional enemies. And uh, we were able to resist and uh, just refuse to move. It's a long story. Um, The government moved our treaty annuities to Minnesota, tried to get us to move there. It was a debacle. Many people died, and it just furthered our resolve not not to be moved. And then um, the next president, Millard Millard Fillmore, uh, rescinded the removal order, and we were able to establish our uh, reservations in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan as a result. And how many of people are there now of your of my tribe? Yes. Well, there are different bands and different tribes of Ojibwe, both in the United States and Canada. There's somewhere between three hundred thousand and three hundred fifty thousand Ojibwe people, Uh and then we have kiss and cousins among the Ojibwe Ojibwe Cree people, and um, you know some other some other people that may not be Ojibwe. Well, that shows how, you know, the, the vanishing race did not vanish, because at one point, there weren't even that many total Indians counted in the whole country. No, you know, it was down and, to 250,000 or something. Yeah, and that, you know, that to me is nothing short of miraculous, David. When you uh-huh. think about the efforts that the United States government took to assimilate, annihilate, remove, you know, trying trying to get us to vanish. And the fact that here we are many, many centuries later and we're still here, um, we have some problems. I mean, we're, we're losing our language, hmm. our languages. Um, that's a huge thing. There's so much anxiety in Indian country over the loss of, of language. And that's a direct re- result of the boarding schools. Yes. Kill what the can Indian be done about that? Is there anything being done about that, trying to preserve those languages? Yeah, actually, and, and um, I think it's really interesting. Google, I think, has a big initiative on uh, now to oh. um, provide uh, translations, you know, as they do uh-huh. um, for, you know, the Romance languages and Chinese and Arabic. Now, um, I think they're going to add Navajo and there's some other languages as well. But I think most tribes are um, taking really serious steps to revitalize their languages. Um, if you if you just Google a, a tribe and language, you'll find that there are language classes online. There are language camps being held in the summer. Um, you know, there's this sort of desperation knowing that a lot of our, our ceremonies, our identity is embedded in the language. That's where, you know, culture yes. resides in the language. So it's really important for us to try to reclaim that. There there are um, immersion schools popping up across the country mm-hmm. where um, children are learning their native language. And in the sixth period for foreign language, they're learning English. So the opposite of the uh, boarding school process, in a way. And what's really interesting, you know, I'm I'm thinking about Wadoka Nodding, which is uh, an immersion school on the um, Lakuta Reservation in northwestern Uh Wisconsin. Uh Um, You know, the the teachers use traditional activities like 
um, sh- uh, the the sugar bush preparing maple syrup in the, in the spring, um, <laughs> which involves a lot of math and science with boil, boiling points and you know that sort of thing. They're incorporating math and science into cultural activities, um, incorporating art and and history into into cultural um, the the cultural activities and practices that. Uh, tribes do routinely. They're using those as experiential learning. That reminds me of sort of a braiding sweetgrass, the Robin Wall Kimmerer book. That oh, that's you know, she's a botanist who used went back to some of those old ways. It's and that's one of my favorite books, if not my favorite book. I I bought I buy about ten copies a year uh, and give them away to all the people that I love or want to impress, you know, or want to, <laughs> or, or want to save yes. <laughs> to get a copy of Robin Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. And I uh, teach that. I use that in my classroom. I teach oh. Braiding Sweetgrass. And it's always, you know, at the end of the year when you get those student evaluations, that's always, you know, one of the highlights of the year for my students is reading that book. It's really transformative. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, Patty, I know that, that among your many... Uh, interest and talents is sort of a love of, of sports and, yeah. and the history of sports. And, and of course, um, there's a strong history of athletes from Wisconsin going out to Carlisle. And I know you studied some of those. Can you tell us about that sort of connection? Yeah. Um, and, you know, for someone that uh, wrote extensively about the Green Bay Packers, you probably know <laughs> that the first professional football player was an Oneida Indian who went to Carlisle and was a big deal there, came back and, um, you know, every little town had a football team. And um, I can't remember whether it was, you know, Bessemer or Marquette or one of the teams uh-huh. in the, the Upper Peninsula was trying to lure him to their team. And the um, Acme Packers, I think they were called, yes, they were. the local Green Bay team, um, the the team from the UP had offered him um, a, a free apartment, I think, and I think the Packers offered him twenty bucks, <laughs> <laughs> and and maybe an apartment too, or maybe uh-huh. he was close enough to live at home. I, I can't remember, but anyway, he was the the first documented paid athlete, and um, I always thought that was kind of a, a funny funny story. I think. Um, there were lots of uh, Metoxins who went yep. to Carlisle that came back. Um, Joe Guyon was a, a pretty um, famous. Yeah, he was a great player. Yeah, a really yeah. good player. Um, Tell me about St. Charles Albert Bender, who uh, yep. who had relatives at Bad River. I think White Earth claims him, but he was an Ojibwe and the first. Um, uh, think, well, he might not have been the first American Indian um, inducted into the Hall of Fame, or maybe he was the first pitcher. But he invented the slider. And <laughs> I mean, I have a, I have a, I have a, 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 a riddle for you, a puzzle. Okay. Charles Albert Bender, who was called Chief Bender of an Appalachian. Of course, they all were. Yeah, yeah detested. Um, faced and retired nine, all nine innings of the batters that he faced. So 27 batters, up right. 27 batters down. But it wasn't a perfect game. 
So how did he do it? Whoa. Yeah. Okay. So nine Uh-oh. innings, three players, three three opposing batters each, re- faced them, retired them in a row, with but he didn't pitch a perfect game. This is a great riddle. <laughs> I mean, it couldn't have been a strikeout that the catcher – so nobody ever got on first base. I didn't say that. Okay. <laughs> Well, that That's must be it—a really wild pitch on a third strike. <laughs> he walked one one batter. Oh, who attempted to steal? Got it, of course. <laughs> and he picked him off, yeah. and so nine batters. That's a good down, one. Twenty-seven batters up, twenty-seven batters down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so there were. The, I mean, to get back to your original question, yeah. there were. Um, a lot of really great Native American athletes in that era. And, and you know, sports is, is such a window into culture. And when the race lines were going up, the Jim Crow rules were, were being enforced, um, there's so much activity and so much race blurring that's going on during that period of time. Yes. Um, and it wasn't really about race. It was really more about color in my opinion um if you were um you know like like the cuban giants who were not cuban they were african-american yes if they were light enough skinned they um you know there there were some that that were able to sneak into the major leagues and play that's absolutely right there was a a negro league player by the name of grant who uh was a second baseman for i want to say the new york giants and um comiskey Wrote a letter and and said, "I know, I know who that second baseman is. That's Charlie Grant, and you know, I know that he plays in the Negro Leagues. And if you put that, I'm not going to use the word um, uh-huh. on second base, then I'm going to find myself a Chinaman and put him at third. You know, uh-huh. so it was really weird. And, and um, Asian Americans couldn't play in, you know, in Major League Baseball. And this is about the time that Thorpe is playing baseball." That's right. Wow. But, of course, there were Indians playing at a time when African-Americans couldn't. Right. And it's one of the, one of the uh, sort of parts of American history that fascinates me is the, dis- the difference between how the dominant white culture treated blacks and Indians in terms of they both were uh, you know, subjected to genocide and incredible racism in various ways. And yet it seemed to me that, that the American Indian was sort of, as I say in the book, romanticized and diminished yeah. at the same time. Absolutely. It was, and, and, and that's what I mean about, about race. Uh, it wasn't it was so much about race as it was about color. Um, uh-huh. You know, Native Americans were lighter skinned. Asians looked different. And so, boom, they're out. You know, um, yeah. African Americans, too much difference, you know, too much skin color difference. They're out. Um, Latinos, if you're light enough, then you can play. If you're dark enough, then you can't. If you fast forward, and um, there, there's a story about two Cherokee brothers during World War II who were drafted. One, they were twins, not identical. One um, had darker features. The other had lighter features. One went into the 92nd, um, uh-huh. you know, uh, the, the 92nd unit, um, which was a segregated group. Um why am I blanking on the word? And the other went into integrated, an integrated unit. Uh-huh. 
Oh. Uh, so this country has always really struggled with race and color and ethnicity. Absolutely. Well, we still are. Yeah, we still are. Very much so. Um, when when Thorpe was uh, given his gold medals before they were taken away, mm-hmm. uh, um, you, you know he was uh, he was praised as sort of the the model American citizen at a time when he wasn't <laughs> even a citizen, right? <laughs> That's really ironic. But yeah, I, I'm fascinated by your your nuanced perspective on the whole connection between U.S. citizenship and Native Americans. Yeah, you know, that was one of those issues that really tore a lot of um, Native communities apart. Because on the one hand, you had people like Carlos Montezuma and Teresa Bender and some of the, um, you know, some of the Native American intellectuals of the time pressing for citizenship, saying, you know, we're just as smart and as productive and as contributing citizens as white people, so we should be citizens too. On the other hand, you had communities like the Mohawk who were saying, look at, you know, we're a sovereign nation and we want to be treated as such and, you know, don't go conferring citizenship on us without, you know, without talking to us first. And interestingly enough, Again, in World War uh, World War Two, in World War One, Native Americans couldn't be uh, conscripted because they weren't citizens. World War Two, they were, and I thought it was really interesting that um, the Mohawk had uh, they uh, they were really unhappy and, and sued the U.S. government, saying you don't have a right to uh, you know to force our our men into into registering for the draft because we're a sovereign nation. But at the same time, their leaders were independently declaring war on the active powers and encouraging their young men to enlist. So, you know, this is really developing at this time the progressive era, which was anything but progressive yes. for Americans, is such a fascinating time because mm-hmm. the country is being built with Indian resources. You know, the, the lumber that is building the cities of America and the railroads is coming out of forests from reservations like mine. Um, the, the metal, you know, the, um, the minerals that are being used to, uh, you know, build skyscrapers and, uh, and I mean, they're coming out of, they're being mined out of areas um, from Indian reservations. So the the wealth of the United States is coming at the expense of Native people who are becoming impoverished, who are losing their land, who um, whose lives are totally regu- you know regulated in every aspect, uh, and and so you know this um, this world of sport is the one area where Native people are able to express themselves where they're able to compete, where they're able to show off their their talents. And this is certainly the case, you know, of, of involving Jim Thorpe, who is, yeah, absolutely. you know, arguably the world's greatest athlete and humble. You know, was, I really appreciated learning more about about him. There's so many great moments in your book. Really yeah. Um, you I know, want- I, I, I wanted to ask you 
about um, his relationship with Pop Warner, because I found that just really fascinating. I saw that movie, you know, and Pop Warner yeah. is really portrayed as, you know, as this magnanimous savior. Of exactly. His biggest booster, and he's my boy, and I, I learned so oh, much. I, I think he's the villain of my book in many ways. Absolutely. I mean, there, there are worse people in terms of race than Pop, but... Yes, he presented himself as Thorpe's savior, but when it, at the most crucial time of Jim's life, he, you know, he abandoned him basically and lied about it um, to save his own skin. So, yeah, and then the movie portrays him as the savior. So yeah, well, as uh, you pointed out, I didn't know he consulted on the movie. Yes, he did. So good on you for pointing that out, and yeah. Avery Brundridge too. Um, yeah. Bundridge. Brun Brundage. Brundage. Boy, I have a hard Brundage. Avery yes. Brundage. I have yes. a hard time with that name. Always have. Yeah, well I just recorded the audio version of my book, so I was stumbling over it too. <laughs> I, but I didn't know about his Nazi connections. That oh yeah, no horrible. Yeah. And you think, do you, I mean you don't you don't come out and say that it was jealousy that drove him, but do you think that that his performance at those same Olympics that Thorpe shown, you know, you think that was what? Yeah, that's sort of, I understate that because I don't really know, but I still right. think it absolutely yeah. do. Yeah. 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 Um, boy, there was such callousness. Oh, I know. You know, I, yeah, it's just really tragic. But boy, he, you know, Thorpe hustled to the end, didn't he? Yes. Never really gave up. No, I know. I, you know, I, I was alternately feeling sorry for him and admiring him, you know, because yeah. he just kept going all the way. So along with the, uh, the issue of citizenship, I'm also fascinated as an outsider on the whole issue of blood quantum, oh, um, yeah. which seemed to me, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed to me that's sort of imposed on a native society by the dominant white society. Yeah, America. that goes back to the treaty making era where, you know, the government negotiated these treaties um, and land, you know, coerced land from yes. native people in exchange for dry goods and a blacksmith shop and a school and all these things that may or may not have come and money. And, uh -huh. the, you know, they called that annuities. And so, right. you know, the tribe would receive, um, uh, an amount, an annuity amount for a set period period of time, maybe ten years, maybe twenty years, and the way the government, you know, by by this time there'd been a lot of intermarriage, and so blood quantum of native people was diminishing, and so the out that the government used was to say, well, once somebody gets below twenty five percent. Why then? They're not an Indian anymore. They're assimilated and they're just white. Uh -huh. And so that 25% blood quantum was imposed on, on Native communities initially. Um, and during this period, during the progressive era where Native governments were not functioning, I mean, you, you couldn't have a government, you couldn't <clears throat> practice your religion, you couldn't wear Native clothes, you couldn't speak your language. Yep. I mean, it was just so repressive. In 1934, the government um, realized, John Collier, who had, was um, FDR's uh, Bureau of 
Indian Affairs Secretary or Commissioner of Indian Affairs had worked with immigrant um, communities in tenements in New York and found that that immigrants who were um, doing you know relatively well were doing so because they had a strong sense of culture and community. So Collier kind of convinced the powers that be in Washington that by helping Native communities revitalize, reclaim culture, um, and at the same time stopping this whole allotment process, which was Mm -hmm. privatizing Indian Indian land and opening up land to white homesteaders, that... um, Native communities would stabilize and and begin to to prosper. That didn't really happen, but but anyway, that was that was the the idea. Right. So when the the Indian Reorganization Act was approved in 1934, Native communities were encouraged to reconstitute their governments. So these IRA governments emerged, but they were really foisted on Native people in um, in a white image. So they they were set up like mayor, town council, mm-hmm. you know, with with a um, a chair, which a, cha- a chairman then now just a you know chairperson, mm-hmm. um, which is more you know what you think of when um, when you think of organizations like the Red Cross or you know a service club have chairmans. You know, the, these these governments didn't have presidents or right. so um, these these constitutions um, were set up and and they were set up in the in, in a in a, a white model and sometimes it created these these weird power dynamics but they adopted this 25% blood quantum. Uh, uh-huh. And so, I'm sorry, it took a long time to get there, didn't it? <laughs> so, it was worth it. Right, well, so in 1934, Indian Reorganization Act, Native communities are allowed to reconstitute their governments, but this 25% blood mm-hmm. quantum is a holdover from the federal government, and it's written into most of these IRA constitutions. And it's only been over the years that Native communities have kind of looked into the future and 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 realized, hey, we're blood quantuming ourselves right out of existence here, you know. And, and right now, we you know we have these communities that are struggling with, um, you know, they're small, and yeah. if and their young people are marrying outside their their tribe because they're related to everybody in their tribe, and um, so they're realizing they have to do things differently. So some are going to lineal descendancy. Others are um, allowing blood quantum from related tribes to count, mm-hmm. which just delays the inevitable problem of genocide, of self-genocide. Um, so it's it's a problem that it, that many communities are are currently grappling with. And of course, it's the complete cultural opposite of the way white America treats African Americans, right? Where if you have one sixteenth yeah. of black blood, you're you're black. You're you black, know? right. Uh, but they did the opposite. And mostly wouldn't you say for financial reasons this was imposed on the tribes? Oh absolutely. Yeah. I mean it, it it began with 
um, if you drop below 25%, then you don't get any, any of the immune, annuity money. Yeah. They don't have to pay you. Yeah, yeah. So, Patty, um, this has been wonderful. Um, can you close by telling us about the various things? You, you've been traveling around the, the, the country, I know, going to Alaska and Montana and all over the place um, for your studies. Can you tell us about some of the things you're looking at and learning? What I'm doing? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was lucky enough to receive a National Science Foundation grant uh, with my colleague, Deborah Raksani, who works with giant screen films. And they create large format screen um, films for science museums around the country. Uh-huh. And we're... Ours is part of a uh, of a project to create uh, a giant screen film, um, a PBS series, and a four and four youth produced short documentaries about climate change. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm working with the Quinault in Washington State. Um, I hope to be working with the Salish Kootenai in Montana, working with the Porch Band of Creeks in. Uh, outside Mobile, Alabama, and then Bad River, my own community, and helping to, to nurture young kids to look at how climate change is affecting their cultural and natural landscapes and what their communities are doing about it. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that, um, by and large, Native American nations are really leaders in climate change mm-hmm. mitigation and adaptation. Um, the Quinault, for example, yes. have lost, you know, they've been losing their salmon because of they lost their glacier in 2015. They're, uh, they have storms that are increasing in frequency and intensity. Their salmon rivers are running too fast. So that when the salmon lay their eggs, the eggs get washed out to sea rather than being able to, you know, their spawning grounds are all messed up. So they are engineering these giant log jams and bolting root balls and Douglas fir together and dropping them in their river to slow it down. And the salmon are coming back. Um, And they're really pushing the federal government to um, dismantle some of the dams that were created in the 30s and 40s to allow those salmon to come back and, and spawn in those um, once fabulously produ- you know, salmon-producing uh, rivers. Is that along the Columbia or um, part the, of Washington State? The Quinault are on the, um, the coast of the Olympic Peninsula. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. So they're on the Pacific side, and, uh-huh. um, and they're also dealing with uh, rising sea levels and their... Um, their, you know, their oral history tells them that every 300, 350 years or so, they get a, a huge earthquake and tsunami, you know, I mean, like a 100-foot tsunami. And a lot of their critical buildings, um, housing children and elder programs, are located in the tsunami zone. Oh. So they're trying to move to higher ground. So... There's some really interesting stories there, and uh, I'm working with two young women who are freshmen in high school, and um, they want to interview their grandma about fishing and tribal people about natural resource um, enhancement and 
and and some of their cultural leaders about why salmon is so culturally significant to their people. I I just can't believe I have a job like this. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> so cool. I think one time I was trying to reach you, you were in Alaska, right? Yeah, I went to the Arctic Encounter Symposium. We have some uh, science, uh, some of our scientific collaborators um, on this project, which is called Ice Worlds, uh-huh. uh, located in Alaska. So, um, boy, did I learn a lot at that at that conference. Um, wow. You know, it's really interesting. The circumpolar region, seventy um, percent of the landmass is Russian. And so when the, you know, and the Russians are being shunned right now and critical issues like climate change and, you know, fishing in, in Arctic waters, you know, those issues don't go away. Um, but there was a lot of anxiety, especially among the Scandinavian countries. Um, and now Norway and Sweden are talking about joining NATO. So there were a lot of really fascinating issues that were discussed there. At the end of, of June, I'm going to the uh, Department of Interior to give a copy of the book to Deb Holland. <gasps> oh, um, lucky you. And uh, I just, I'm struck by her so strongly. Uh, what do you think she means to the whole Indian community? Oh, everybody is so proud of her, and she has such a genuine heart. You know, uh-huh. you, you talk to anybody that knows her, and they they talk about how sincere and honest and authentic she is. And, you know, when she and uh, Sharice Davids first got into Congress, the first thing they did, you know, one of the first bills they um, they crafted was uh, the two bills to address the issue of missing and murdered indigenous women. Yes. And that brought a lot of awareness. Um, you know, that was something that those of us in Indian country knew about, but that that kind of awareness was something that needed to be brought to a mainstream audience. And now her work with Indian boarding schools, um, you know, she's just, I, I think she's doing a really bang up job there. Yeah. It's nice to have somebody who knows Indians. Being in That's for Indian. sure. Yeah. Well, Patty, this has been great fun. And thank you so much for everything you're doing and for encouraging me. Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe is available online and at bookstores on August 9th. Visit davidmarinus.com to order your copy. This has been an episode of the David Marinus Ink in Our Blood podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and that you'll subscribe to the Ink in Our Blood podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whichever podcast service you prefer. If you loved it, we'd love it if you left a rating and review. Ink in Our Blood is produced by Metamorphosis.agency. Music has been written and provided by Monika Ryan. Ink in Our Blood is hosted by Sarah Marinus Vanderschaff. Thank you for listening. <laughs>